Who are the real people we consider our sages? Who were they in life? What is the legacy they left us? Join Rabbi Danny Saxton for the next hour as he explores the lives of our Torah giants, the spiritual geniuses who shaped the way we approach Judaism today. That's Focus on Our Sages right now on 101.9 High FM. Good afternoon and welcome to Salt to Salt. It was great to be with you on a warm Wednesday afternoon. Today is the 5th of Adar Aleph, the 5th day of the month of Adar Aleph, um, the 14th of February 2024. And um, just to discuss a little bit about the Hebrew calendar, we, as we know, the Hebrew calendar follows um, a lunar calendar, not a solar calendar. So our months are determined by the cycles of the moon, um, either 29 or 30 days, depending on when the new moon appears. And that means that our year, the lunar year, is 354 days, unlike the solar year, which is 365 days. So it means in the lunar year, you're losing 11 days relative to the solar year. Now, the solar year, it's repeated every year. It's exactly the same. It's identical. In other words, the times in the solar year, it's a, a very solid unit, and it's uh, predictable and repeatable. Um, and so, for example, today being the 14th of February um, of 2024, um, here in Johannesburg, so we have sunrise at, um, I'm looking up right now, our sunrise is 552, our sunset is, is 651. So 14th of February last year, 2023, was the same time, the same times. And 14th of February 2025 will be the same time. So, in other words, the unit of the solar calendar is exact is exact and predictable. The lunar calendar, on the other hand, since we lose 11 days, the times change, and there's a requirement according to the Torah that Pesach is always in spring. It's called Chag Ha'aviv, the festival of spring, and so Pesach always needs to be spring. So we have to adjust for and make a correction for the losing of the 11 days. So the Muslim calendar also is a lunar calendar, but they don't make the adjustment. So you'll see that the festivals in the Muslim calendar can appear at any time, at any season, because you're losing 11 days every year. Whereas in the Jewish calendar, we are uh, we have to have Pesach in spring, so therefore we add an extra month for that correction. And the way it's called the the cycle um, of the months um, that we have is called a, um, a a machzor, which means a cycle. In Hebrew, machzor katan is a cycle of 19 years. So in the machzor katan, in the 19-year cycle, so we have seven leap years. So it's seven out of 19 years are leap years, which is quite a lot, isn't it? It's, it's like uh, almost every three years. It's even more common than every three years a little bit less than every three years. So that's why this year, again, is a leap year. So we have, when there's a leap year, we add another Adar. So we're now in the month of Adar, and this um, is the fifth day of the month of Adar Risho. We'll then be having a second Adar, Adar Sheni. And usually we celebrate Purim on Adar Sheni. So we know that Purim is on the 15th um, or the uh, 14th of Adar. Is Purim, so usually uh, outside of Eretz Yisrael, um, Purim is on the fourteenth of Adar. In Eretz Yisrael, Shushan Purim is fifteen Adar, but we celebrate Adar in the uh, we celebrate Purim in the second Adar, not in the first Adar. Why is that? Because 
the Gemara says there needs to be a smichas geula legeula. There is a connection from one redemption to the other. The redemption of Purim flows on to the redemption of Pesach. So we want them to be connected rather than having a separation of a month in between. And that's why Purim is always in the second Adar. When it comes to Yotzat, the Ashkenazi Minah tradition is that we celebrate, we, we commemorate the first Adar and the second Adar. But the main Adar is actually the first Adar. But, the, the, uh, but also a person has a Yotzat in Adar would still say Kaddish and light a Yotzat candle in the second Adar as well, unless the Yotzat is specifically if the person passed away in Adar Shani. The person passed away in a leap year and it was Adar Shani, so then they wouldn't do anything the first Adar. But if the person passed away in a regular year in Adar, so then although the main Yotzat is commemorated on the first Adar, but also we still do things in the second Adar. And usually the Bar Mitzvah, we have the Bar Mitzvah in the second Adar as well because we follow the Gemara, what it says about Purim. So that's why we're in Adar Rishon. Today is the fifth of Adar Rishon. And today is the anniversary of 67 years since um, Israeli troops withdrew from the Gaza Strip and from the Sinai Peninsula. So we see it's familiar today in 2024 as Israeli soldiers are back inside the Gaza Strip, unfortunately, and they have to clear out the terrorists and Hamas in order to ensure the safety and security of the Israeli citizens. They have absolutely no choice. They didn't desire this. They didn't choose to do this. Israel is not interested in harming any Palestinian civilians. Hamas is interested in harming Palestinian civilians and hides amongst the civilian population. But Israel um, has to weed out the terrorists in order to ensure that their civilians are safe and protected from Hamas. And so today, 67 years ago, in 1957, Israeli soldiers withdrew from the Gaza Strip and the Sinai Peninsula. The follow- this followed the Suez War of 1956, which France, Britain, and Israel teamed up to stop Egyptian interference with shipping through the Suez Canal. Um, the Suez Canal was a crucial trade link between Europe and the regions of India, North Africa, and the Middle East. Two-thirds of Europe's oil passed through the Suez Canal. Um, and what happened was Nasser, Gamal Abdul Nasser, who was the nationalist leader of Egypt, um, nationalized the Suez Canal going against the treaties and the agreements of the United Nation, Nations and the uh, the British and the French were very concerned about this and they teamed up with Israel and they then um, interfered. In, in other words, they, they got involved and took over the Suez Canal. Israel was very successful in the war. It was able to sue Gaza and the Sinai um, quite quickly in a, in a few days. There's a famous uh, battle in Multa Pass where Arik Sharon, uh, the previous uh, Prime Minister of Israel led his forces and defeated the Egyptians over there in Multipass in the Sinai. Um, but Israel were fearing a larger conflict with the Soviet Union, as was Britain and France, and President Eisenhower of the United States forced a ceasefire and persuaded Israel to withdraw. Eisenhower was very angry that the British and French didn't include him in, his, in their plans. They didn't inform him. He felt that it was a breach of their partnership and of their agreements, um, and therefore he was very upset when this took place, and he put a lot of pressure on Israel to withdraw. In response to the Suez War, the Egyptian government expelled 25,000 Egyptian Jews and confiscated their property 
and sent a thousand more Jews to prisons and detention camps. So Israel withdrew on this day, 67 years ago, the 5th of Adar Aleph. Okay, let's keep going in terms of the calendar. And tomorrow is the 6th of Adar Aleph. Tomorrow is the anniversary of when Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, completed his farewell address to the Jewish people, and God informed him the day of his death, which would be the next day, which would be which is Zion Adar. Um, this was in the year 2448 since creation, the year 1273 before the Common Era. Amazingly, the anniversary of Moses completing his teaching coincides with the date in 1482 of the first printing of the standard format used for the Torah for Jewish um, file books of Moses that are printed today that have vowels and that have accents and that have translation, the Targum Yonasan, Targum Munkilo, sorry, and uh, Rashi commentary. So that standard set that we have comes from 482, which was actually the same day when Moshe Rabbeinu ended his teaching, which was the end of Sefer Devarim in the year 2448. And that takes us to tomorrow. Sorry, that's tomorrow. That takes us to Friday. Friday is Zayin Adar, is the twentieth of is the seventh of Adar, a very important, significant date. If you stay with us, we'll be back in a moment. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on one hundred one point nine High FM. So we're talking about uh, tomorrow being the 6th of Adar, which is the anniversary when Moshe Rabbeinu finished his teachings to the Jewish people, the end of Sefer Tavarim. And then on Friday is Zayin Adar. Zayin Adar is the day, is the Yotzat of Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu died in the year 2448, 1273 before the Common Era. And so this Friday is the 3,296th Yotzat of Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe was, of course, the great leader of Klai Israel. He died in the year, in 120 years after he was born. And that's why we say the term, I should bless you that you should live 120 years, like Moshe. Moshe was born in Egypt at a time when Pharaoh had decreed that all Jewish boys should be drowned in the Nile. His mother sent him afloat in a reed basket, as we know, where he was, ironically, you see Hashem's sense of humor, discovered by, of all people, Batya, Pharaoh's daughter. And she brought him back to the palace where he was raised. So Pharaoh wants to kill all the Jewish boys because his um, astrologers tell him that the savior of the Jews is being born and his downfall is going to be water, which was true. It was the water. It was the Mamre River. It was the water in the desert. And so Pharaoh orders his soldiers, his KGB, to uh, any Jewish boy born is thrown into the Nile. But the irony is that um, his mother puts him in this reed basket and uh, Pharaoh's daughter comes down to now and her heart opens in a very powerful way to this child and she takes him back and begs her father, please can I uh, keep him? Please can I bring him up to the ta- palace? Please can it be my own? And uh, his father, the, the, her father agreed. And so Moshe is raised in the palace of the king, the king who wants to kill all the Jewish people. So it's just an amazing thing how Hashem runs the world. And Rabus Machshavus Belevish, there are many thoughts in the heart of a person, as King Solomon says, for Hashem Hisakum, and that's Hashem's advice, it's Hashem's plan that stands. When Moses matured, 
his heart turned to aid the Jewish people. He killed an Egyptian who was beating a Jew, and he fled to Midian, where he married and had two sons. He married Zipporah, the daughter of Yisro. Yisro was like the Pope of Midian, the spiritual head of their idol worship. Um, then he is um, in the desert, and he is uh, leading the sheep in the desert. He's a shepherd, and God appears to him at the snare, at the burning bush, and God tells him that he needs to return to Egypt and to confront Paro and to tell him to let the Jewish people go. Uh, Moses then leads the Jews out of Egypt through the ten plagues and the splitting of the sea, and seven weeks later the Jews arrive at Har Sinai and receive the Torah, the only time in human history that an entire nation experienced divine revelation, Moses being the leader, and all of the people, three million people, hearing God and seeing God appear at the mountain. Over the next 40 years, Moses led the Jews through the desert and supervised the construction of the Mishkan, of the tabernacle, which is this week's Pasha, actually Pasha's Truma, which we'll discuss a little bit later. Moses dies before being allowed to enter the land. As we said, his downfall was the water, and the consequence of that was he wasn't to lead the people into the land. Moses is, of course, regarded as the greatest prophet of all time, the most noble human being that's ever walked the face of the earth. So Friday is the Yotzat of Moshe Rabbeinu, 3,296 Yotzat. And also, by the way, that's that's the day, uh, interesting enough, the Chirik honors all those that are involved in um, the burial process in doing a tahara, which is a very holy thing. It's called the Chesed Shel Emes, people that are involved in um, in ensuring that every single Jew receives the um, treatment that they deserve and the um, the process that leads to the burial, which is the purification of the body, which is very important to the soul of a deceased individual. And there are many holy people in our community that give of their time freely in order to ensure that they do a tahara, both men and women, men for men, women for women. And they honored on the seventh of Adar, which is Moshe Rabbeinu's Yosef, because Hashem buried Moshe Rabbeinu. So we learn from Hashem about this chesed, and therefore all those that are involved in this unbelievable kindness are honored as well. Okay, great. So let's, uh, let me mention one more date to you, and then we can move on. So the, the last date is the Shabbos, is the eighth of Adar. And I think it is worthwhile mentioning that it is the Yotzeit of Levi Eshkol. Levi Eshkol was the third prime minister of Israel. He died in the year 1969. Um, Eshkol led the country during the Six-Day War, then during the 67 War. So he died only two years after that war. Um, and it, the Six-Day War was a very important um, victory for the state of Israel, a very important time. Israel was facing annihilation. Israel was only 19 years old and had five Arab armies that were well supplied and well-trained on its borders. Under the leadership of NASA, Israel faced annihilation once more. It looked like there would be a second Holocaust. Isn't that unbelievable? And um, Eshkol was the prime minister. There was a lot of drama just before the war because he was also the um, the minister of defense. It, it was set up by Ben-Gurion that the prime minister would also be minister of defense, but Eshkol was not didn't have the profile of a minister of defense. He himself was not a very impressive person to look at, although he was very smart and he was very uh, sharp and he had a great, he was a great politician, but he wasn't, didn't come over so impressively in the press. He wasn't such a, 
a, a eloquent speaker and he didn't look very impressive. So he didn't give the air of confidence and strength. Um, the opposite was true. But nonetheless, he, he at in the last minute, appoint, appointed after much public pressure, Moshe Dayan as the Minister, Minister of Defense, which was a very smart move and made a massive difference in the Six-Day War. Um, he was born in a very small village in Kiev in the year 1895 in Ukraine. Esh made Aliyah at the age of 19. As Prime Minister, he worked to improve foreign relations, establishing diplomatic contact with Germany and also cultural ties with the Soviet Union, which allowed some Soviet Jews to immigrate to Israel. Eshko is also known for implementing the national water carrier system, which was essential to the development of the state of Israel. So let's move on now to, as I mentioned, you know, we read this week about the Mishkan, which we'll talk about in a moment, but I just want to mention one thing first, and that is last week's Pashas, Pashas Mishkatim. So we see the week before was Yisrael. Ka Yisrael come out of Egypt, they crossed the sea, Pashas Bashalach, they then received the Torah at Mount Sinai, which is Pashas Yisrael two weeks ago. And we go straight from Pashas Yisrael, the unbelievable cataclysmic event which was the most dramatic and important, significant event in the history of the world, God appearing to a group of people, to three million Jews at Mount Sinai, which to this day, 3,336 years later, the majority of the world's population accept and agree that that was the case, that the Jewish people um, received the Torah at Mount Sinai. Isn't that an amazing thing? To this day, most of the world's population agree that that's true. That actually happened. That God appeared to the Jewish people. And... Um, straight after that, the Torah then goes immediately into the civil laws of the Jewish people. And the Pasha started last week with These are the Mishpatim that I'll place in front of you. So why is it Va'ele? Rashi explains to us that the word Ele in the Torah, which is an emphasis on these, in other words, these are not what was before, but Va'ele connects you to what was before. As Rashi says, Ma Harishonimisan Sinai Af Elumisina. Just as the previous laws were from Mount Sinai that the Torah has just spoken about, so too are these laws, the civil laws, from Mount Sinai as well. And so we shouldn't make the mistake and think that the civil laws of the Jewish people are the same as the civil laws of every other society. So in every society, every civilized society, their laws. They're laws that ensure that the society operates harmoniously and doesn't just swallow each other up and destroy each other. There have to be laws, and that's what we see when there's no rule of law. So there's terrible suffering and destruction to innocent people. You know, you look at certain states in America where there's no rule of law, and it's a complete disaster. It's mayhem. There's theft. There's robbery. There's homeless people on the streets. There's drug addicts all over. It's just that uh, people are moving out of California in their droves. They say San Francisco is like a zombie wasteland. Um, I saw Elon Musk said that the headquarters of X is in the middle of San Francisco. From his office, he watches the, you know, the drug addicts shooting up and walking around and then falling down. It's just unbelievable. So when there's no rule of law and um, being implemented, it causes mayhem and chaos in society. So every society has their civil laws. But the, we shouldn't make the mistake and think that the laws of the Jewish people are the same as every other society's civil laws because ours are from Sinai, ours are from God. And not simply are they there to create peace and functioning harmoniously 
um, of the society, but rather they are much more than that. The civil laws in Klai Israel are there to develop us spiritually, are there to enforce or encourage the spiritual growth of an individual. They are there to ensure that we do the inner work that we're supposed to do. I'll give you some examples. For example, Lush and Hora, right? So you, we know that there's a very serious prohibition of speaking in a derogatory way against somebody else in the Torah. And others might say, well, you know, the, the, all societies believe that gossip is bad and discourage people from gossiping. But you'll ask them, what if it's true? Even if it's true, they'll say, no, no, if it's true, it's different. Well, the laws of Lush and Torah apply even if it's true. You're not allowed to speak in a derogatory fashion about somebody, even if it's true. So we see that, and they're very demanding laws in Lush and Hora, and they're very particular, that we have to really work as one of the hardest mitzvahs in the Torah to observe, and that is not to speak in a derogatory way against others, and not to embarrass others, and not to belittle others. Even if it's true, it's very difficult to do, because Hashem wants us to work on ourselves, wants us to rise above our lower selves, wants us to have self-control, and see the neshama in another and not harm another with our tongue, which is the most one of the most devastating weapons that a human has. Another example. Let's say the Torah demands of a Jew. Let's say you are driving down the road and you see somebody has a puncture. And then you see 10 meters further, there's a second puncture. The one guy is your friend and the one guy is a person that you really despise. Although the Torah says, do not hate your brother in your heart. Um, but this is a guy you just don't get on with. It just, you know, some people we get on well with and, and it resonates and things are good. And some people doesn't. It might even be because they've done something to you and they've hurt you in some way. The Torah says that you're obligated to help the guy you don't like before you help your friend, the guy you like. Help your enemy before you help your friend. It's a government government based on last week's Pasha, which is unbelievable, which is telling you that as a Jew, we are sent to this world to work on ourselves. We're supposed to rise above our feribles, our our dislikes of others. That's hard work. It's not easy. A person may genuinely have hurt you and wronged you, yet the Torah wants us to work through it, to go past it, to let it go, and to work on ourselves. So that's the civil laws in Israel from Mount Sinai. They're about developing and growing as a human being. I'll give you one last example. It is, I know it's an extreme example, so for our listeners out there, I'm not saying you have to be on this level, but nonetheless, it does illustrate the point that we're making over here. There was a very famous Rov. Um, he lived in the United States, in Borough Park. He was the Rosh Yeshiva of the Navardak Yeshiva. Navardak is a certain approach to Musa, a certain style of, uh, of self-growth and self-development, which was developed in the city of Navardak in Lithuania. And this individual was well-known, and was a very prominent person. He was the Rosh Hashiv of Nevada, very highly respected by the religious, the Orthodox Jewish community in the United States. And he was, his wife actually was also came from a very Hashu family, a very important family. He, his wife was the daughter of the previous Nevada Rosh Hashiva. So in other words, the son-in-law took over the Yeshiva, and he was uh, the, the father-in-law was the Rosh Hashiva in Lithuania before World War II, before the Nazis destroyed European Jewry. Anyway, this rabbi, his name is Rabbi Yafet. Rabbi Yafet was a um, was founded by another rabbi who lived in Brooklyn, 
to be the Masadi, not sorry, to come to his son's wedding. So this rabbi lived in Brooklyn, who the, um, sorry, didn't live in Brooklyn, lives in the Bronx. My New York geography is not so great. So this rabbi from the Bronx called Rabbi Yafin and said to him, please, would you come to the wedding? So Rabbi Yafin said, look, I live far away. I live in Borough Park, which apparently is quite a long way away. And um, I don't really know the Chosa. I don't know the Chosa. I don't know the Kala. I barely know you. But he said the rabbi from the Bronx insisted and said, please, and it would enhance our simcha greatly to have a Talmud Chochum of your caliber present. And please, please, would you join us? And he said, okay, I'll come. So since it was such a long way and he was an elderly man, they, he, he and his wife, Rabbi Yafin and his wife, thought that this rabbi, his son was getting married in the Bronx, would send transport. They didn't have a car and they would send transport. No transport is arranged. And so they have to catch the subway. They have to catch a bus. It's a long, long journey to get there. Um, eventually they get there. And what's normal within the religious world is to have a Talmud Chochem of a high caliber is a great honor and privilege enhances our celebration. Of course, you want to honor them with one to being part of the ceremony in some way, and that enhances and lifts and brings a level of holiness to the ceremony. But they didn't give Rabbi Yafin any honor at the chuppah. And so, you know, that's the way it goes, and they stayed at the wedding. Anyway, um, it was a, a bit inappropriate, a bit of a chutzpah, that, that he made all the effort. He was one of the greatest rabbis in America, and yet he was not uh, acknowledged at all. Okay, that's okay. A few weeks later, so it was actually a few months later, Rabbi Yafin and his wife um, have the wedding of their daughter. And their daughter married also a very well-known family in America, the son of a Rosh Hashiva. And uh, it, was, it was like almost the who's who of uh, Orthodox Jewry was at the wedding, especially the Rabbonim. So all the great rabbis of America were there. And when such a gathering takes place, so one always looks at, you know, who's going to be honored, which one's going to be the Sadiq Yedushin, the one who will actually marry the couple and who will be the one who gets the honor of reading the Ksuba under the Chuppah and who will get the Shiva, shiva Brochas, which rabbis will be honored Shiva Brochas. Because it's the, this all-star lineup, so, you know, it becomes quite a thing. And they call up this rabbi from the Bronx to get a Brocha under the Chuppah. And everybody was like, nobody really knew who he was. And in the presence of so many other great, prominent Talmud Chachamim, great Torah scholars and holy people, it was actually quite a shock to everybody. This unknown individual was honored with a brocha under the chuppah. Anyway, they asked Rabbi Yafin, what's he doing? How come this guy gets the honor? He said, I have my reasons. Anyway, nobody knew why it was. And uh, it only came out after Rabbi Yafin died that the reason why he honored this individual was because he was overlooked by this individual. And now, and he didn't want to carry the machloikas, carry the resentment with him. And he said to his wife, he said, the way of Navadok, our view of life, is tachas hakpada hatava. In the place of being particular and being hurt and having resentment, we put good. We replace that with good. That is the approach of Navardok in life. That's how a Jew should live their life, is that in, you shouldn't be makbid. You shouldn't look for feribles. You shouldn't hold on to feribles. In the place of hakpada, of being particular, hatava, do good. And he said, therefore, I wanted to practice what I preached, and therefore I went out of my way to show that I didn't harbor any resentment and that I gave this rabbi who overlooked me the honor under the chuppah.
So I know, wow, that's like that's quite something, you know. That's really a high level, but that's something that we all should try strive to achieve. And it's something that's within our reach. And our civil laws, the laws, the mitzvahs in the Torah are supposed to facilitate this inner growth, are supposed to be a framework within which to do the work that we're supposed to and develop ourselves spiritually to develop our souls. Please stay with us. We'll be back in a moment. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. Let's discuss a little bit about um, the next progression in the parsha. So we go from from Yisro, the receiving of the Torah, to Mishpatim, the civil laws which are supposed to enhance and lift the person to a high spiritual level to overcome our lower self. And then we have Truma, which is this week's parsha, which is the building of the sanctuary, the building of the Mishka. And the Torah tells us that after Moses came down from the mountain, he came down on Yom Kippur, and that's how we know Yom Kippur is a day of forgiveness. And the next day, he instructed the people to build the sanctuary, to build the Mishka. And he said, he gave them the clear instructions of them giving their donations and contributions. And he said to them, um, what Hashem had told him, Va'asuli mikdash, make for me a Mikdash, a sanctuary, and I will dwell in them. So that's a, a beautiful lesson for us, is that the Mishkan, the sanctuary, the temple, well, it was a temporary sanctuary. Um, as long as they were in the desert, when they got to Eretz Yisrael, they built the base of Mikdash under the leadership of first David Melech, who prepared everything, and it was actually built by his son Shlomo HaMelech, um, which was built uh, in the in the year um, 900 before the Common Era, around there. So, so that's when David HaMelech declared Yerushalayim his capital, and then the base of Mikdash was built soon after that in Jerusalem. And so, you know, Jews have been in the Holy Land for centuries, for thousands, for over 3,000 years. So to say that it's not our homeland is a complete lie, a complete fabrication of history. Jews, since under the leadership of Joshua, after the death of Moshe, which is your site, as we said, is on Friday, from, since then, um, the Jews have been in the land. So that's... Jews have been in the land for 3,296 years. And ever since that moment, there's Jews, Jews have been in Eretz Israel. And Islam was not even invented. Islam was only thought of 1,500 years later, um, which is quite unbelievable, isn't it? Um, so, the, so, of course, it's our indigenous homeland. The Palestinians that are there only came much later. That most of them came in the 19th century when the Jews started coming back and there were economic opportunities. So um, although uh, there were some Bedouin tribes from a little bit before, but most of the Palestinian population only came in the, in the uh, 19th century. Uh, the Jews have been there for 3,000 years. So certainly it is our homeland. And um, uh, from, so, so the temple was built by Solomon and um, that was a physical permanent manifestation of the Mishkan of the temp of the mobile sanctuary, which was commanded by Moses the day after he came down. And says, make for me a mikdash, and I will dwell in doesn't say in it, but in them. So there's a hint over there that we're supposed to 
every single one of us make ourselves a mikdash. Asuli mikdash. Make for me a mikdash. Make yourself, your being, your body a mikdash, a sanctuary. And I'll dwell in them. That if you do that, I'll dwell in you. Hashem's giving us all the unbelievable opportunity to make ourselves holy beings, to make ourselves ambassadors for God, to make ourselves ourselves and our lives a space for Hashem to dwell and be comfortable. And particularly in our homes. Our home should be a mikdash, should be a sanctuary, should be a place that God is comfortable to be. Firstly, we follow God's laws in our homes. We follow the laws of kashrus, follow the laws of Shabbos, we follow the laws of Taras HaMishpacha, family purity, follow the laws of Tznius, of modesty in our homes. And then it becomes a space where Hashem is comfortable to be. And of course, within our relationships, if there's shalom, ish ish if there's peace, if there's shalom in the home, so Hashem's presence is there. And it's something that you can quite easily sense. When there's a good relationship between the husband and wife, there's shalom bias, you can feel Hashem's presence. You feel a certain peace and tranquility in the home. And when there's not shalom bias, and when unfortunately the parents don't have a good marriage, you can feel Hashem's presence not there. That's an amazing and very powerful thing. So Hashem instructs us, make for me a mikdash. Yes, it means in a general sense, build the sanctuary, but also make yourself a mikdash. Work on yourself. Don't be an animal, a, a sophisticated animal that's tracing, chasing after our appetites for power and for pleasure. And that is the preoccupation of our existence. Rise above that. Hold on to the Torah. Observe the mitzvahs. Be a holy person. Be a person who has self-control and who follows Hashem's commandments and Hashem's will more than just following our own individual will. And in that case, we will become chariots to the Shekhinah. We'll become ambassadors of God in this physical, material world. Stay with us. We'll be back in a moment. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. Let's end off with one final idea, which is very powerful, coming from this week's parsha. As mentioned this week, the Torah commands us, God tells Moses to tell the Jewish people that they need to build the sanctuary, the Mishka. And one of the, the and uh, Moses lists the materials that need to be contributed to build the Mishka. Among those materials are the Oris Elim Me'adamim, the skins of rams that are red, and the skins of tachashim. What's tachashim? Tachashim is a kind of animal. That's what Rashi says. Tachashim, minchaya, vlaesa It was a kind of animal that was only in those times. In other words, it's extinct. doesn't uh, exist anymore. Vaharbe gavanim hayula. And this kind of animal had many colors. It was a very colorful animal. And therefore, the skin of that animal was very colorful. And those were the skins that were on top of the Mishkan. Um, there's a, the Gemara Shabbos discusses were they connected to the ram, the red ram skins or were they separate from the red ram skins, but they were used to cover the Mishkan, to cover the sanctuary. So we see that um, in Sefer Bamidbar, um, 
we see that the we commanded to um, each of the shvatim, each of the tribes had their own flag. Um, and so we know the 12 tribes, and each of the 12 tribes had their own distinct flag. Distinct flag. For example, Yehuda, the tribe of Yehuda, had the lion. The tribe of Yisachar had a donkey. The tribe of Zulun had the ships. The tribe of Dan had the snake. Each one, there were very deep spiritual reasons why that was the symbol of that particular tribe, but it represented the different ways of the tribes. In fact, we know that a shul has 12 windows, and those 12 windows represent the 12 tribes. Um, I don't know if anybody has seen at the Hadassah Hospital the Shagal windows, which are 12 windows in the shul at the Hadassah Hospital, which were, um, which were uh, designed by uh, Mark Shagal, a very famous Jewish artist, and each one is one of the tribes. They represent the 12 tribes. So Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky, and he says, and he says, why did Hashem instruct each tribe to have its own flag? Isn't that a bad idea? Doesn't that create division? Doesn't that create competition between the tribes? You know, like, for example, let's say in the United States Army, you have the Air Force and you have the Navy and you have the Army. Each one has its own flag. Each, there's a lot of competition between them. You know, like the Navy SEALs say, we're better than the Special Forces and the Army Delta and the Air Force pilots that fly the F-35 say, we superior to the Navy pilots that take off the aircraft carriers, whatever it is. It creates a certain amount of competition which perhaps is not healthy. But the Alfred Kamenetsky said that the instruction for each flag, each tribe to have its own flag was only in the second year. He says competition can be destructive and negative, but it can also be positive. And in this instance, it was positive because only in the second year were they given that instruction. And that was after they were all united under the Mishkan. Each tribe had its position around the Mishkan, and only after they had all had their position around the Mishkan was their identity emphasized. Were they, um, was, was the, um, the, the importance of the individuality of each tribe brought out. So in other words, Klai Israel, Hashem's telling us, Klai Israel is not supposed to be monolithic. Klai Israel is made up of many different colors and many different tribes, and each one has its own function. And the Meshachachma says that was the purpose of these Tachashim. The Tachashim, which were very colorful, you know, we in Africa, can we understand what colorful animals look like. You know, they're very colorful birds. We have our leopard, which is a magnificent colorful animal. We have uh, the zebra. So this uh, Tachash was a very colorful animal that is extinct today. So says the Meshachachma that Hashem wanted that on the Mishkan, on top of the Mishkan, on top of the Kodesh HaKadoshim, on top of the Holy of Holies, to show that the individuality of every Jew is holy, is important, is emphasized. Shivim Panim the Torah. There are 70 facets to the Torah. There are many different ways. There are the 12 tribes in the shul, the 12 windows, because there are 12 pathways to Hashem. Not everybody's supposed to be a carbon copy of the other. Um, for example, Zvulun, he was the one who learned all that, and Yisachar, was the other way around, sorry. Jesus was the one who learned all that. He was the donkey who, the, who carried the heavy yoke of the Torah. And Yisachar, his flag was ships, who was the merchant. So you have the Jewish businessman, you have the Jewish Talmud Chochem in the base Midrash, and you have everything in between. Because the nation of Israel 
is not a single you know, monolithic nation, but rather is made up of many types and many colors and many individuals. And we emphasize the individuality and the importance of each individual. Hashem created us all different. And we all have strengths and we all have weaknesses. And those strengths are supposed to be emphasized as long as they're under the banner of the Mishkan, as long as we're all under the flag of Hashem, as long as we're all serving Hashem. And it's been an amazing thing at this time. That's why I wanted to share this idea with you. Because in t- right, since October 7th, there's been a beautiful unity in Klai Israel. And all the different colors and parts of the Jewish people have come together under the banner of Hashem, under the flag of the Torah, that we are a people that follows God. And we received the Torah at Mount Sinai 3,336 years ago. And we, although there are different parts of the Jewish people, we are all one family. And we all join together. And it's at times like this where we are facing our enemies and we are facing the, the barbaric attacks of our enemies and the unbelievable anti-Semitism we see around the world, how the UN, how the ICJ, how the South African government sides with these evil individuals and our enemies. But we come together as one nation, many different colors under one single flag. And that is what Klal Yisrael are and that is what the family of the Jewish people is. Um, and please, God, we should maintain this unity and continue to f- f- shine brightly with our individual colors under the unity, the unifying flag of the Mishkan of Hashem. And please, God, we should see the defeat of our enemies and the end of the suffering and the building of the permanent Mishkan of the Beisam Migdash Shlishi, the third Beisam Migdash. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful day.